0: Welcome to The Forum, everyone, where science comes to socialize. I'm Cleo. I'm Daniela. And I am Aubrey. Thanks for tuning into our show today, and remember that you can listen to us anytime on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. You can also check us out on Twitter and Instagram at ISGP Forum, or on Facebook by searching for ISGP's The Forum.
1: And last one, I promise. We're also online at isgpforum.org, where you can read more about our team and all the content we create for listeners and students alike.
2: Okay, with all that out of the way, let's get started on today's hot topic at the intersection of science and society. You guys are in for a real treat this episode.
1: Oh, are we finally devoting an entire episode just talking about cheese?
2: No, no, no. Are we going to do a sequel to our recent 3D printing episode? I just really love that one.
1: Oh, speaking of sequels, are we doing an episode on how all the new Star Wars sequels are just chock-full of scientifically inaccurate portrayals of lasers in space, and also Baby Yoda? (laughs) Well, I was kind of being facetious.
0: The topic today is pretty daunting and mostly sad, and now I feel really bad for getting everyone's hopes up. Oh, I see. Well, pivoting here, let's
2: see how well I know you with that context. I'm guessing this is probably going
0: to have to do with either food or the ocean. That is spot on, and I'm a little sad that I'm getting this predictable. But this topic is not just sad for the sake of being sad, but actually a really important thing to talk about, acknowledge, and just basically understand.
1: Uh, I hear you, Cleo. As painful as it is to do that sometimes, it's just so necessary to examine our actions and interactions of the world in order to really assess what's going on.
2: Daniela, literally three seconds ago, you were psyched about doing an episode on cheese or Star Wars. (laughs)
1: Hey, life is all about balance, Aubrey.
0: Okay, okay. I'm just going to get started here. So today we're going to spend our time talking about the plastics. And no, I'm not talking about Regina George here. But FYI, I am absolutely taking that as a personal challenge. (laughs) Well, with a topic like this, a little levity here and there definitely couldn't hurt. But in reality, we're specifically talking about the plastics that wind up in the ocean. From there, we'll also touch on the idea of individual and collective action when it comes to a problem as expansive as our dependence on plastic.
2: And also, for the record, I could have seen that one coming from you too, Cleo.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I get it. I have patterns, a type. But see, I've been traveling a bunch recently and just been watching myself throw away so many single-use plastic containers when I'm on trips or running through airports, and it was driving me absolutely crazy. And on top of that, I literally can't look at Facebook without seeing a video of an albatross choking on plastic. So naturally, I was like, okay, it's time to do an episode on this one.
2: You go, Glen Plus, as much as I love a good straw, we definitely need to be questioning if we need the straw anymore, or perhaps more specifically, who needs straws.
1: To help us in our conversation today, we have an interview with Kira Abraham-Pani, the Senior Outreach Manager for Conservation and Science at the Monterey Bay Aquarium.
0: Kira, who you'll be hearing from shortly, does the work of communicating the conservation efforts of the aquarium that happen outside its walls, including the organization's three main avenues to ocean health, sustainable seafood, ocean impacts of climate change, and reducing the source of plastic pollution in the ocean. And we'll also be consulting
2: a few foundational studies in plastics and ocean health, including the paper from which we'll get these next few Plastic Fast Facts. In 2017, authors Geyer, Jambeck, and Law published the paper titled Production, Use, and Fate of All Plastics Ever Made. This work is now widely used as one of the first and most comprehensive global analyses of
1: all mass-produced plastics ever manufactured. So, to kick us off in this conversation on plastics, did you know that ex-boyfriends are off-limits to friends, and that's just, like, the rule of feminism? (laughs) (laughs) I love this episode so much already.
0: I already feel really bad for anyone who's listening and hasn't seen Mean Girls.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it sounds just a bit random. Anyway, sorry, okay, for real this time. Did you know that as of 2015, 6,300 metric tons of plastic waste had been generated, 79% of which had accumulated in landfills or the natural environment, like oceans?
0: And 2015 was close to five years ago now, which means there have been almost five more years of plastic consumption and subsequent accumulation. The authors estimate that by 2050, roughly 12,000 metric tons of plastic will have built up in our landfills and natural environments.
2: In order to begin wrapping our heads around this problem and conceiving it as an extremely multifaceted issue, today we want to specifically focus on the plastic that makes its way into the ocean. Now. This is not to say that plastic everywhere isn't harmful, but oceans provide a good starting point in understanding the expanse and complexity of the problem we're dealing
0: with here.
1: Also, for what it's worth, keeping plastic out of oceans seems to be really trending right now on my social media feeds.
0: Same, I can't go through a single scroll sesh without having to acknowledge that I'm a terrible human for forgetting my reusable mug at the coffee shop last week and accepting a cup I know couldn't be recycled. But we'll hold off on that particular piece of the conversation until a bit later in the episode.
2: For now, let's think about how plastic debris is found in all major ocean basins and how close to 9 million tons of plastic makes its way into the ocean every year. And if you need help quantifying that for yourself, it's basically like a dump truck full of plastic being emptied into the water every minute. Not every day,
1: or even every hour, but every minute. And to continue on this path, let's think about plastics as both whole objects, like shopping bags or water bottles, and as broken up particles, or microplastics.
0: One thing I always think about when imagining plastic in the ocean is the North Pacific gyre dubbed by the media as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. This patch would be an example of those whole objects that float around in the water. Now, I've always heard of this congregation of trash as an island of debris, but Kira has another way of thinking about it that I think helps us here on land conceive of the issue. Let's let her explain it.
3: And so you use the word island, and I think that that's been a a helpful metaphor for people to wrap their minds around the problem and to picture sections of the ocean where large plastic trash has has accumulated. You can really visually see it, but it's not exactly as solid and concentrated as, as that would lead you to believe. I've seen the estimate twice the size of Texas to describe the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. But really, you're talking about a liquid environment where, again, there are three dimensions of dispersal and it doesn't quite capture that breaking up of plastic into smaller pieces and the distribution throughout the water column. So some people are now describing it as more of a plastic smog in the ocean, something with, you know, more fluid borders that doesn't have real distinct boundaries around it. You couldn't stop at the plastic garbage patch and walk across it, for example.
2: Okay. So no actual trash islands out there yet. None for Gretchen Wiener's. Bye. I suppose that's a good thing. The next level of plastic waste in the water, though, is somehow even more alarming. Let's have Kira talk to us a little bit about how once plastic is produced and gets into the water, it never really goes away or breaks down, but instead carries on its life as plastic in this smaller, more insidious form we call microplastics. Take a listen.
3: We know that wind and wave and uh, sunlight and water break down plastic. I should actually say it breaks up plastic because when we think of breaking down, we think of biodegrading or composting. And that's not what happens to plastic in the ocean. It simply breaks up into smaller and smaller pieces while retaining its molecular composition as a polymer. So it stays plastic. It just becomes very small plastic.
1: Another major study, one conducted through Monterey Bay and published in Nature in 2019, sampled all along the water column and found these microplastics exist as far down as 2,000 feet. The authors conclude that there's likely not a place in the ocean that hasn't seen plastic debris of some sort or another. Which, again, is a pretty
0: scary thought, especially when you consider how this is already affecting marine life. Now, we've all seen those horrific photos or videos of a sea turtle with a straw stuck up its nose, But let's take a minute to break the issue down a bit. Plastic affects marine life in two major ways, ingestion and entanglement.
2: The latter, entanglement, occurs when an animal gets wrapped up or caught in plastic somehow, be it tangled in a bag or caught in those canned drink rings that you're supposed to cut up. This can have effects on the animal's ability to move, thus its ability to obtain food or migrate, Or, it can work to either slowly or quickly constrict an animal's body parts, like a neck or even their entire torso.
1: If a baby seal finds itself with a ring of plastic around its body when it's small, this may not seem like a big deal, at first. However, as the seal grows over time, the plastic ring begins to constrict and even impede growth. To conceptualize this, you can think about the stereotype of a pet growing to fill the size of its container. If the plastic doesn't wear out or break off somehow, that ring can begin cutting into the animal's body, eventually killing it. Even if this hypothetical seal dies because of the plastic ring, though, that doesn't mean that the ring dies too. Instead, the ring lives on to harm another animal.
0: Ingestion of plastic can have similar excruciating effects on marine life. Plastic can be ingested by an animal that's more of an indiscriminate filter feeder that will take in anything in front of it. Thus, if there's plastic in the water, it'll end up in the animal's stomach. Then there's the fact that some plastics mimic or seem like an animal's food. The common example of this is a regular plastic grocery bag resembling a jellyfish when floating in the water, thus attracting sea turtles who, surprise surprise, like to eat jellyfish. And these aren't just hypotheticals, guys. Just a couple days ago, actually,
2: researchers from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies, the Natural History Museum of London, and the Two Hands Project published a study on the effects of plastics on hermit crabs. According to this study, more than half a million hermit crabs have been killed after becoming trapped in plastic debris along the shorelines of two remote islands in the Indian Ocean and the South Pacific.
1: Plastic has already affected all known species of sea turtles and over half of all marine mammals, Whales, dolphins, and porpoises all fall into this category. 56% of all seabirds have also been affected, and these numbers are all projected to continue increasing.
0: In fact, by 2050, more than 99% of seabird species, so basically all of them, will have negatively interacted with plastic debris.
1: Ingesting plastic means clogged digestive tracts and an absence of nutrition absorption any time an animal thinks it's eating real food, but is actually trying to feed something like a lighter to its young. This results in death by starvation. However, this isn't the only reason researchers think plastic is harmful to the animals that ingest it. Here's Kira
3: again. Another method that it could impact animals is sublethal impacts. And those are, as you mentioned, microplastics, which can adsorb. That's adsorb with an AD. Chemical constituents from the surrounding seawater, making them potentially even more contaminated than the plastic components inherently are chemicals in the seawater some of these persistent compounds like ddt which although banned in many parts of the world still exist in the ocean they can basically stick to these plastic particles it's it's almost like um, sticking to a magnet and so as animals are eating these plastic particles that may pass all the way through their digestive tract We don't know what impact, sublethal impact, the chemical constituents might have on them and how those chemicals might or might not be stored in lipids and bioaccumulate through the food web. It's an area where we really need more scientific study.
0: Well, unsettling would be the best way to put that. Something we still have to address here, though, is the question of how. How does all this plastic make its way into the ocean in the first place? I mean, it doesn't even go here. Yes! (laughs) I know, that was brilliant. But isn't the thought that if we all recycle, we won't have these sorts of problems? Unfortunately, and as you might have guessed at this point, that's not exactly the case. Most research suggests that this plastic travels from land to get into the
2: ocean, meaning the vast majority of plastic waste is not coming from fishing gear, but instead from the everyday use and discarding of plastic. This isn't just coming from coastlines either, but from inland sources too.
1: Plastic easily finds its way to rivers, canals, storm sewers, and the like, and at the end of all these paths is an ocean waiting to receive both the water and whatever the water is carrying. Even if we do put our recyclable plastic in the recycling bin, like responsible citizens, this doesn't ensure proper disposal.
0: Plastic is often carried away by the wind, blown off trucks or facilities, and ending up in waterways. And here's a secret straight out of Gretchen Wiener's hair. Ooh, nicely done. That was a good one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and go watch Mean Girls if that doesn't make you laugh, peeps. (laughs) Okay, ready for the secret, though? Plastic that
0: does make it through to a recycling facility does not always get recycled. A lot of the recyclables we produce here in the U.S. get exported to other countries for processing. In some of these places, the management systems aren't always as developed, and not all the plastic can actually be recycled. When this happens, it's not unheard
2: of for some places to pile the plastic by a waterway and wait for the trash to be taken out to sea. And it may be easy to want to put the blame on this secondary place for not recycling the waste, but ultimately it's waste that we produce and that we need to ensure is responsibly handled.
1: Which brings us to a good stopping point for a quick break. When we return, we'll explore the idea of responsibility further and discuss some options of what we can realistically do to solve our plastic problem. Stay tuned.
2: Are you a high school science teacher interested in using our podcast in the classroom? We've got you covered. The forum is proud to offer podcast-based educator resources consisting of comprehension questions, activities, and lab assignments to facilitate student engagement and learning. These packets covering topics like climate change, solar energy, and synthetic biology are free to download at our website, isgpforum.org. Happy teaching.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to our episode on plastic pollution, featuring a special look at
1: the plastics in the ocean. I think my brain is broken now because I just pictured a Mean Girls slash Little Mermaid crossover,
0: (laughs) which I, for one, would totally watch. But moving on, we just gave you a quick look at how much plastic is in our oceans, what this means for marine life, and how it got there in the first place. To
2: continue, let's talk about some things that are being done to take responsibility for plastic use and rein in the consumption. Just a quick side note, though, that we won't cover the newer, up-and-coming, and and somewhat controversial ocean cleanup technologies, such as those proposed by people like Dutch inventor Boyan Slat.
1: Yeah, a discussion of these would probably require a second episode, which we may eventually do. But right now, we'll look at some examples of both individual and systemic changes that are already happening from the local to the national scale.
0: And since our interviewee today works out of Monterey Bay, we can look at California's efforts as a primary example. When it comes to plastic pollution, the Monterey Bay Aquarium itself works with governments and other institutions primarily on the front of reducing plastic waste sources along the supply chain in the first place you know, as opposed to being heavily involved in these newer cleanup methods. So this ends up looking like pushing for less plastic to be made and used across the board. The lowest
2: hanging fruit here is single-use plastic. This refers to plastic that we only use for a few minutes before tossing it. Think plastic utensils or containers. According to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, a lot of this comes from packaging, whether this means the plastic of a water bottle or the packaging that housed the pink shirt you bought online to wear on October
0: 3rd. (laughs) Before we move on, though, just a quick note. Kira was clear that the aquarium is not against the use of plastic per se, especially when it comes to plastic used in applications for human health and safety. The institution still values these and other more durable plastics that have longer and varying lifetimes. What we're mainly talking about here is the saran wrap, my to-go coconut curry container, gets industriously bundled in every time I go to my favorite restaurant in Salt Lake. It's one of those things that I always forget to ask the restaurant not to do, but I inevitably forget. Then I go home and throw a whole ball of saran wrap away after just 20 minutes of use.
1: That literally happens to me at my favorite place right next to my office, and I just feel like, oh, lunch or plastic, what do I do?
2: Yeah, for me, I think the biggest issue is plastic water bottles or the, um, you know, the to-go containers from restaurants that are plastic instead of, you know, the paper
1: closing boxes. Yes, so I can relate. Yes. <laughs> well, in the hopes of avoiding these exact situations, the aquarium works on change at three levels, consumer, businesses, and government. Let's let Kira take center stage on this, you know, as the voice of the aquarium.
3: Well, here in the Monterey Bay area, we've supported local jurisdictions that have been reducing some of the most ubiquitous single-use plastic that flows through mostly restaurants. And so we've seen in the cities of Carmel, Pacific Grove, and Monterey with several other local cities looking at some ordinances to cut back on these kinds of plastic. Also, Watsonville and Santa Cruz, also bordering Monterey Bay, have taken on some local laws that, for example, restrict plastic takeout containers from restaurants. I don't think I mentioned Pacific Grove, which has one of the most ambitious policies addressing dry cleaning garment bags. For example, the city of Watsonville has been pretty restrictive in the sorts of single-use plastic that, um, that flows through their retail services as well. The state of California has been a leader in reducing some of the more persistent, ubiquitous sources of plastic pollution. In 2016, voters upheld a California law that banned single-use carryout plastic bags from grocery stores. These are the handled bags. In place of those bags, people are encouraged to bring or buy reusable bags. Most grocery stores offer those at very affordable prices, or people can pay a small fee. It's usually 10 cents to receive a paper bag with a high percentage of recycled content. California has also banned rinse-off personal care products. Those are things like face washes and toothpastes that contain plastic microbeads, which are often too small once they go down the drain to be captured by wastewater treatment systems. And they had been a problem in that they were discharged into waterways, which I'll reach the ocean. And California last year enacted legislation that requires all full service restaurants to only provide plastic straws to people who ask for them. So those are examples of where California has already adopted laws that reduce plastic pollution. I think the bag ban on its own prevents 15 billion plastic bags from being used every year. And California is currently looking at more comprehensive legislation that shifts more of the responsibility to the manufacturer level. And that legislation hasn't been voted on yet, uh, but we do expect it to come back in 2020. And as an aquarium, we're very interested in and supportive of a more comprehensive approach that looks at the problem holistically, as opposed to trying to pick off certain problematic products um, and address the manufacture of these products in a way that will both disincentivize their production and incentivize alternatives.
2: So here we see a really interesting situation of how local institutions can function as catalysts and communicators when it comes to pushing for policy change at the state level, which is an ongoing and fairly successful endeavor that we actually don't get super often here
0: in our examples on the forum. Let's move on now to individual action and personal changes. Something I was pretty skeptical about when talking with Kira was just how effective individual action can be in the face of such a persistent, ingrained issue like our rampant use of plastic. If I forego using a straw or plastic utensil, am I really doing anything? Isn't there some larger systemic shift I should be devoting my energy to instead?
1: To answer concisely, our interviewee at least replied with a, yes, individual action does matter. To fully understand her response, though, we have to explain a bit further.
2: Basically, what it comes down to is how connected individual action is with the collective and how important it is for these two ideas to work in tandem. Individual action is a great place for change to start because it's easy for people to actually see something happening.
0: For example, if I bring my reusable cup to the coffee shop, I know that I just prevented using, then immediately throwing away, a plastic-lined cup with a plastic lid. It's an action
1: that feels good and something the average person can connect with. Kira argues, however, that this individual action actually goes far beyond the individual consumer herself. That's because when you choose to bring your own mug, you're sending a signal to others. Listen in
3: you are sending a consumer signal and companies pay very close attention to what their customers are saying, both in person as you are standing there in line saying, I brought my own cup. They keep track of this stuff. Big companies will keep metrics and they really keep their pulse on what buyers want, Um, especially the millennial generation and Gen Z are sending really clear market signals that they are not interested in being part of consumer practices that are just making these big problems that fall disproportionately on those younger generations worse. They want to see and support companies that are changing the way they do business. So I would say that the consumer signal that you send when you make those choices is probably an even more important impact than the physical trash that you prevent from going to the landfill.
2: It's like peer pressure, but the good kind instead of the kind that makes you buy army pants and flip flops look like Katie Heron. (laughs) She also argues that these consumer signals go even further when the individual talks about what they're doing. In other words, these seemingly small actions can be amplified when you do something like saying, hey, coffee shop, thanks for the discount when I bring my own mug and then people behind you in line here and take notice and then take action. Better yet, you can do something like this on social media, our favorite thing, as you know, so that the message gets projected even further than the people behind you in line.
0: The idea is that by taking these seemingly small actions and using one's power on platforms like Instagram stories, we can all help establish new social norms, kind of like how we once suggested that Ryan Reynolds should Snapchat getting his flu shot. And that... A cultural shift is how something like refusing plastic straws begins looking like collective action.
1: And what's great about this idea, too, is how accessible this type of change is. Things like reusable grocery bags and coffee mugs can easily be found for under $10. If you can afford to go buy a cup of coffee in the first place, chances are you can afford one of these mugs as well.
2: And if you have the means, it's especially important to make these changes because there are some people, largely due to disabilities or health risks, who cannot make such changes and who need single-use plastic to live. If you're an able-bodied person, it's your responsibility to step up to the reusable ceramic plate, so to speak. Again, we can analogize this to how non-immunocompromised people need to get their vaccines so that people who literally cannot get their vaccines are still protected by herd immunity.
0: So, in short, these individual choices mean so much more than the initial impact of saving one cup or one straw. But wait, there's more. We can take this even further. If we think about ourselves as more than individual consumers and instead see ourselves as constituents in an active democracy, the world of individual action begins to collide with systems change.
1: Right. What if instead of just choosing to shop in places that align with your environmental and plastic moralities, you contact other businesses and tell them you know they can do better. What if instead of just voting, which is BTW's, the absolute
2: bare minimum responsibility as a constituent, you begin demanding more from local officials like waste management directors or the school board? Being active in your community is
0: so much more than just participating in small business Saturday or even just voting. So if you've been listening to all of this and trying to take it all in but just still don't feel very connected with oceans or marine life or feel inspired to go talk to your local representatives, here's one last effort to make all of you out there see the gravity of this situation.
1: Even if you don't live by an ocean, the chance that you live by a waterway of some sort is pretty high. And as we discussed earlier, these places are often the starting point for a lot of marine plastic debris. The Great Lakes in the U.S., for example, receive 22 million pounds of plastic each year.
2: But even if you don't live by a waterway, plastic is becoming ubiquitous in ways we never really expected. In fact, we as humans come into direct contact with plastic at nearly every stage of its development and lifetime. The effects that ocean plastics have on human health, actually, is an area of research that still needs a lot more development, but we do know that ingestion of microplastics isn't something that just fish do. These harmful particles travel all along the food chain, including to us. Studies are beginning to associate things like obesity, infertility, and cancer to the toxicity of these microplastics once they enter a body, but again, there's lots more research to be done here. To hear more about how something called nanoplastic is getting into things like our drinking water, you'll have to keep an eye out
0: on our social media for an episode extra
2: coming out this week.
0: To wrap things up today, let's hear from Kira one more time. She's got a message particularly geared towards the U.S. and the responsibility we have as a super influential country.
3: In the United States, we've heard a lot of people saying that our country is is not the problem and that other countries are mostly to blame for plastic pollution in the ocean. And I want to emphasize that we do have a very important role to play and a lot of accountability that we can uh, take on as Americans because of our levels of consumption. According to Dr. Jambeck's study, the average American discards about 270 pounds of plastic waste every year. That's among the highest rates in the world. And that's the responsibility of every average American every year. These companies that are currently pumping out so many consumer products in single-use plastic packaging, they can take us in a different direction. We are a country that prides itself on innovation, and we can figure out other materials that are more bio-benign, um, that are truly compostable, and we can reconfigure our waste management systems to capture those materials and turn them into compost. We can improve the recycling systems domestically so that we are not dependent on other countries to take our waste and do something with it. We can require manufacturers to be accountable for the materials they create and also to ensure that they stay within a more circular economy and continue to be captured and reused. We can design systems that allow people to reuse packaging or buy things that are not packaged at all. We can facilitate bulk shopping and systems that recapture your package and allow you to refill. The United States is a trendsetter globally in how we consume goods, and we created plastic within just a few lifetimes. Our grandparents, as children, received their milk in jugs that were then picked up and reused. It sometimes feels like a problem that is just too deeply embedded in our society. But we need to understand that we have the power to reverse the trend, to bring down production. We can do that through business, through our individual actions as consumers, through government policies. And we can turn it around pretty quickly if we have the collective will to do that.
1: As depressing as I imagined this episode to be, That was actually a way more uplifting ending than I expected.
2: Yeah, same here, but there are definitely a lot of unanswered questions
0: still. So that's why it's important for you, the listeners, to reach out and keep the conversation going. Is plastic pollution in the ocean something you're concerned about? Do you recycle regularly? Do you know where your recycling ends up?
1: How convincing do you find the individual action argument when it comes to actually making a change?
2: And what would your life look like with less cold, shiny, hard plastic? How about no plastic? How about fewer mean girls quotes seamlessly intertwined into your favorite podcast episodes? Although maybe seamlessly is a bit a subjective term. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, tweet us or DM us your thoughts at ISGP Forum or contact us on Facebook at facebook.com/ISGPForum.
0: Let's give a big thank you to Kira Pani for lending us the perspective of the Monterey Bay Aquarium and for the many scientists who worked on the papers we also leaned on for expertise today. Watch out for the episode extra this week and come back in two weeks' time for our discussion on a whole new topic.
1: Yes, please do that. I can promise the next one is going to be just as uplifting as this one. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) thank you all for socializing with science today, and we'll catch you next time right here on the forum.
2: The forum is sponsored by the Institute on Science for Global Policy, or
1: ISGP, an international think tank that has no opinions and does not lobby. Any views expressed in the preceding podcast are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by ISGP. Podcast theme music is provided by Steve Combs and Lee Rosevear.
2: For more information on the forum and its programs, please visit our website at isgpforum.org.